outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, I'm joined by Dr. Craig Harper to discuss his perspective on how we can manage our hunting properties to benefit the greatest number of species in the greatest number of ways. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light and their Camo for Conservation initiative. You're probably familiar, but if you're not a portion of every sale of First Light's whitetail gear is donated back to the National Deer Association to help them with their mission to make things better for deer, deer hunters, and deer hunting well into the future. Big fan of that one, and today's guest I am also a big fan of. We are joined today by the one and only Dr. Craig Harper. He is a professor of wildlife management and the extension wildlife specialist in the School of Natural Resources at the University of Tennessee. He is also the recent recipient of the, let me make sure I get this right, the Deer Management Career Achievement Award from the Southeast Deer Study Group. In 2021, he was given the National Deer Association's Lifetime Achievement Award. He's the author of multiple books, books that a whole lot of habitat managers rave about, many, many published studies, and he's just simply one of the foremost authorities and one of the best communicators when it comes to deer management, wildlife habitat management, and so, so many things that folks like you and I are interested in. Craig is is truly the best of the best of the best, and I'm thrilled that he's here with me today to discuss a topic that we have been exploring, kind of meandering along the way throughout this month during Habitat Month, 
one of those main themes that I've brought up with a lot of folks, I brought this up with Doug, brought this up with Thomas, and we definitely talk here today with Craig, is this idea of, of how can we do more with our properties? How can we look beyond the simple, you know, throw a bag of food plot, see in the ground and grow a food plot and shoot a bigger buck? That's great. I, I enjoy that too. But there's got to be more we can do. There, there's probably a bigger impact we can have beyond that if we just widen our view a little bit. And today, Craig helps us explore that theme and those topics really in a, in a terrific way. He's, he's wise. He has a tremendous amount of experience in these, in these topics. He's able to kind of recenter me in some places. He's able to focus me in certain places and not just focus me, focus us, I think, in some very valuable ways. So we're going to talk through everything from you know managing for better cover on your property to discussions around native versus invasive species and, and how to be realistic and what we can do with that kind of stuff, why we might want to do that kind of stuff, what types of projects will help our white-tailed deer, what kind of projects will help our turkeys, rough grouse, bobwhite quail, insects, birds, the whole gamut. We're going to discuss it. This is one of the best habitat-related podcasts we've had in a while and I'm just very excited that you guys get to listen to it or watch it if you're over on YouTube. So with that said, I think we should just get to my chat today with Dr. Craig Harper. All right, here with me now is Mr. Craig Harper. Craig, thank you so much for joining me. No problem, Mark. Glad to be here with you. But it's been a while since uh, since we talked. I know, I know. I, I actually went back to try to find when it was that I last had you on the show, and it shocked me how how long it's been. I don't know how I've managed to make the mistake of not trying to rope you into one of these sooner, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't. It's been since 2016, Craig. Wow, eight years. I wouldn't have guessed it'd been that long. No, it's it's gone very fast. It's. Uh, I don't know if it's because I've had kids in the interim, but everything seems to be just flying by this last uh, five, six, seven years. So, uh, well, I'm I'm sure eight years ago when I was with you, I had more hair and it was darker than it is now. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen worse, Craig. I've seen worse. You're doing all right. <laughs> and uh, I gotta I gotta give you special thanks for making time to do this because we were exchanging emails ahead of this. And you had told me that you were just returning from several weeks in the backcountry. So uh, you must be exhausted and coming off of a heck of an adventure, huh? Well, not really. Um, it was a lot of fun, but, uh, you know, I, I, I kept up. It's it, the, the part that drags you down is I was in New Mexico for a couple of weeks. But then upon returning, I had to, uh, to go to West Virginia and then I had to go to West Tennessee. And so it's. It's been four weeks of back to back to back to back, you know, solid being gone. And so I think I've been home one day now and uh, it's it's all, it's impossible to catch up after all that time in a day. But I'm plugging away trying to get back at it. Yeah, that's the one downside of, of travel is that you get that hole of, of emails that you can never dig your way back out of. Oh, yeah. And um, then even even if it's even if it's vacation, I mean, you 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 sit there and it's almost like excruciating knowing what's building up. You know, this mountain of emails and phone calls and and everything else. That man, it's just uh, if, if you don't keep up with it to the best of your ability, 
it, it's it's insufferable. But yeah. when I was in New Mexico, we uh, we were in the back country. We were away from everything in a wilderness area. And uh, after about day four, I finally quit worrying about not being able to keep up with stuff. You know, I just, you, you know, I can't. There, there is no service. Uh, there is nothing, no power, no running water. We did have access to, to one spigot, but, uh, you know, a couple of weeks in the back country, no showers and cooking over fire and that kind of thing. So, you know, after a while you get into it, it's like, man, this is really nice where I don't have the constant distraction of, you know, the, the day-to-day calls and emails and everything that comes in. Yeah, you can't beat that. I I remember reading a few years ago about something called the three-day effect, I think, uh, in which a series of actual studies had shown that it's on day three, at the end of day three, when the body starts showing quantifiable physiological changes to that, you know, separation from the phone and the internet and work. Like, it takes that much time to fully disconnect and recalibrate. And then there's all these huge benefits to your to your psyche and everything once you're fully immersed and uh, I, I, I totally believe that 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 was my experience for sure yeah well i'm jealous i i've not had several weeks in the back country but i could use it and uh i'm, I'm glad you're back though and, and willing to do this and absolutely for you know to be respectful of your time i'm not going to ask you to give me the whole roundabout resume and explanation of of what you've done in the past because most folks have been following you and are aware of that and I've introduced you already so I want to kind of drop you and drop us right into the meat and potatoes of this this world I've been exploring over the past month or so with folks and I, I want to open with a challenge I guess that I was faced by something I read from you mm-hmm. I was reading in one of your books that the idea that you can just manage for wildlife is is a false one and a and a bad path to take. And I was challenged by that because I've been trying to, in my own kind of path as a wildlife manager and deer manager, I've I've thought to myself, it might be better to step away from managing just for deer and to instead take a larger managing for wildlife or managing for the ecosystem perspective. And I've been kind of exploring all that. But then I read your piece and said, you can't do that. You can't just manage for wildlife. You need to pick a focal species because managing for wildlife is too ambiguous. And so I guess I wanted to, to hear a little bit more from you on that as a starting point. Was I, was I interpreting that correctly? Do you believe that managing for wildlife is, is kind of a false premise and, and too ambiguous of a, of a goal to have? Well, where that came from is where I have given presentations helping people come up with their property and, and wildlife management plans. And uh, and it, it doesn't matter if you're a private individual or, you know, a biologist that works with a state agency. It's, it's a very, very common thing for us to say our objective is wildlife. And what I was trying to clarify is that that term wildlife is too ambiguous to plan for, that you need to at least identify a species or suite of species that you're interested in because you cannot manage for everything. Uh, there's there's too many species that have very, very different uh, habitat requirements, you know, 
specific items of of uh, food resources, cover resources, water resources, etc. And so um, you'll hear somebody say, "Yeah, our our objective for the property is wildlife," and and that's when I say, "Well, let's try to be a little more." Uh, precise in, in what we're talking about because wildlife in this sense is too general. Now, when you mention managing for deer, what I try to bring out to people uh, very commonly, and this has really come about through some some studies that we have finished and worked on through the years, is deer is known as a, quote, generalist species. Uh, you know, at least in the eastern U.S., the two most common uh, wildlife species that people manage their property for is deer and wild turkeys. And it just so happens that both of those are considered generalists, meaning that you find them in a wide range of, uh, of, of landscapes. You could be in very open landscapes in totally uh, closed canopy forest landscapes and a mixture of everything in between. And you're going to find deer and turkeys in all of those. And so they don't have... Uh, some specialized requirements like, say, a grassland obligate songbird does uh, or, or a forest interior songbird, for example, and you don't find them anywhere else. Sure. And what I've tried to do is use white-tailed deer in particular, but, but turkeys also, to try and manage for other species because, at least in my opinion, in my professional opinion, if you're managing white-tailed deer to the best of your ability, that means that you're going to have a wide variety of vegetation types and a wide variety of successional stages available to them because although deer do not have to have do not have to have any one vegetation type or successional stage in order to have a robust population, their populations generally are more robust and with better body condition if you have a variety of vegetation types and successional stages because then you're going to have different types of food and different types of cover that are available and make survival and body condition better through the year. And so then when you are doing that, you then by default are providing habitat for species that most landowners don't know anything about and, and may not care anything about. And that may be shrubland songbirds. It might be uh, uh, grassland songbirds or forest obligates, uh, obviously non-game and, and other game species as well. So I think white-tailed deer and wild turkeys are unique in that a lot of people manage for them and not many people manage for some of these non-game species but if we enable them, teach them to manage their properties better for deer and turkeys, then by default, they're making their properties better for a whole lot of other species. Yeah. And, and would it be fair to say that that managing for deer or turkey kind of acts like a gateway drug in that if you're able to get in the door because you're incentivized to have better deer hunting or better turkey hunting, that might be the thing that opens you to the room of possibilities, which might be helping these other critters out, helping these songbirds out, improving your grasslands for this species or that species or whatever it might be that you would never, ever, you know, that would never enter the realm of possibilities unless it were for the fact that you were originally incentivized to, to improve your hunting opportunities, right? Yes, I, I, I believe that 100%. Certainly, when you get into what you might call a more holistic approach to managing property for, for white-tailed deer, you know, and you can add turkeys in there if you want. Um, 
there's no question that you gain a greater appreciation for the various plants that you will then see and for the different species of wildlife that will be occurring on the property. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been curious about and that I've been spending a lot of time reading into and and trying to learn more about is how, you know, cyclical or how connected everything is on a landscape. And so if we want quality deer hunting or quality turkey hunting, it might behoove us to to care about those other things too. That native vegetation, the songbirds, the insects, the pollinators, etc. Um, because that all of these things end up touching each other in one way or another, right? And while I think it's fair to say that we are living very likely in the golden days of deer hunting, you know, that's not necessarily the case for a lot of other species on the landscape. You know, I, I think I'm preaching the choir here when I talk about the decline in birds across the North America, 3 billion fewer birds now than 50 years ago. Uh, I know you've done research a lot on bobwhite quail, grouse, right? Significant declines in both of those species. 44% of insects are threatened with extinction in the relatively near-term future. There's a lot of things that uh, aren't doing so well right now. And I've, 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 thought to myself that there's this unique opportunity that we, the deer hunters of America have, and that we own land for wildlife and recreation. We're pretty well armed with education and tools to manage the landscape, and we're incentivized to do so because we want better deer hunting or better turkey hunting. If we do those things with a slightly wider aperture, we very well might be able to stem the losses of all these other things too. Um, is that is that uh, a step too far? Am I am I having uh, delusions of grandeur, or could we save the world, uh, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase? I, I don't know that we'll save the world, but I definitely think we can make it a better place. How's yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, not not just for for us in in achieving our immediate uh, objectives or or goals, but but also for for all of these other wildlife species and and many plants, as you mentioned. Um, We just finished a series of projects looking at uh, field management techniques and how different field management techniques impacted deer, turkeys, uh, grassland songbirds, shrubland songbirds, several different species, and pollinators as well. And one of the things that we found is the great increase in plants for pollinators when you manage fields more appropriately, I would say, for deer as opposed to just having uh, fields dominated by grasses. Mm. And so by reducing the amount of grass coverage and increasing the amount of forb coverage, you have by default increased resources for for pollinators and, and, and lots of other insects. And it's interesting to see the close tie that so many insects and then other invertebrates have with the forb community as opposed to the grass community. Not to say that grasses won't support uh, some, they, they certainly do, but you will see larger populations and more diverse species or groups of species assemblages in these areas that have uh, a much greater forb component than, uh, you know, a field dominated by grasses. And uh, one of the latest projects, uh, Wade Fellers and, and Bonner Powell worked on was comparing how some of the field renovation uh, 
techniques looking at planting native grasses and forbs as opposed to using the seed bank only yeah. after getting rid of the uh, the vast coverage of, of non-native grasses. And for every metric, the seed bank response was just as good, if not better, than planting native grasses and forbs. And so I'm not saying that you should never plant native grasses and forbs, but I will say for a majority of the species that we are interested in, and on a majority of sites, you don't have to plant native grasses and forbs in order to have a much, much better plant community and, and also responding wildlife community. And, and I think that is, uh, I think it's very important information because we found that we could treat, restore, impact four times more acreage by simply using the seed bank as opposed to planting native grasses and forbs when you consider the cost. Yeah. I think I read a piece that you that you wrote about this study and some of the implications of it, and it had me thinking about some things I could do myself. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, 
planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. If you were looking at some of the most impactful ways that you could, you know, work on your property, manage your property in a way that like we're talking about, that's not just deer in a silo, but looking at the larger ecosystem, the health of all these different um, categories of species, is field management appropriate field management for quality early successional habitat? Is that one of those top tier categories of things that we need to put at the top of our list to be thinking about? I, I believe so. And when you think of it in about as simplistic way that you can, if you have property, you probably have either woods or fields or both. I mean, if we just boil everything down. And so having a mixture of that is what is most important if you're interested in species richness, having a variety of of either wildlife and or plant species on on the property. And so then you get into the the nuances of, of how to manage that. And that's where a lot of this field management research that we've been doing has shed a lot of light on we don't need fields with solid grass coverage for a vast majority of the species that we're managing for. I mean, unless it's a, a grassland obligate songbird, such as an eastern meadowlark or grasshopper sparrow, what have you, which still requires some or obviously benefits from some forbs, whether it be from the structure or for the, the food resources that are uh, available from them, whether it's uh, seed or the uh, the insects that are associated with the plant, we see that, that these forb communities provide a lot and your your management of the fields to go in that direction instead of simply grass coverage will get you a lot more. So what you're saying is that these 40-acre uh, plantings of nothing but switchgrass, uh, not such a good idea. Um, I would say, in my opinion, no, but the the data bear it out. I mean, will will a deer lay in a switchgrass field? Yes. But will they lay in a field containing naturally occurring native forbs just as much? Yes. Do they eat switchgrass? No. Do they eat these forbs? Yes. And these forbs, the vast majority of them, uh, the ones that deer select, actually have greater nutritional value than the maximum amount required by bucks growing antlers or lactating does. And and I'm telling you, when people begin to see the value of, let's just use this word loosely, weeds, and for most people, they're referring to forbs Mm -hmm. when they say weeds. It's an inaccurate use of the word, but that's the way most people use it. When people, and, and especially deer managers, truly understand and appreciate the value of these wild, naturally occurring forbs, weeds, the the, the game has changed. Um, by and large, you, you, you don't need summer food plots anymore because they're out there growing wild. And, and we are realizing tremendous increases in uh, both antler size and body weights per age class when you have a certain amount of the property in these plant communities that are providing these uh, highly 
nutritional uh, plants, the various forbs that are they're just coming up from the seed bank that they didn't even bother to plant. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that, but I, I can hear some people saying, well, why would you want your food and your cover all in the same place? where the deer would just stay in there in daylight and never come walking past your tree stand, right? That, that's the argument I think a lot of people would say is like, I want just pure switch here or, or pure bedding here, and then I want pure food on the other side, and I want to hunt in between, and, you know, or they'll say, well, we want switchgrass because it holds up better in the winter and provides better cover at certain times of the year, right? There's, there's very specific kind of use cases some folks will say from a huntability perspective where they'd want something like that. What would be, what's your response to that, I guess? Well, <laughs> one is you're not a bad person if you plant switchgrass. I mean, it, it, it's all right. I'm not saying that uh, it, it's a bad thing, but but I am saying that it's a better thing for the deer if you have better plant diversity out there rather than just switchgrass. And the whole notion that, you know, my, my hunting is, is no good if I have food and cover in the same spot, that's, that's just simply wrong. That's, that's it. All you got to do is look at any deer movement study, uh, you know, GPS collars, et cetera. I don't care what the quality of the cover is, what the quality of the food is, deer are still going to move. Uh, that, that's a fact. Yeah. And so your hunting pressure has a lot to do with when they move, if they're showing up in open areas or wherever before daylight or if they're uh, staying put un- until dark. And so don't confuse the, the quality of cover with, with hunting pressure. Uh, both can be very influential. But, but look, we manage these fields in the way that I'm uh, talking about, and we hunt over those fields. And, and you can see deer moving in these fields. And, and we're talking about cover that is, uh, you know, at, at least three feet, maybe five feet or so in height. And, you know, there'll be some plants that get taller than that. And, uh, and it's according to the plant composition as to how well it holds up over winter as well. Uh, many of these plants hold up just as good and provide just as good of a uh, uh, visual break and with with cover through the winter as, as switchgrass does so uh it, it's it's incorrect to think that you have to have switchgrass to have uh cover in fields and and as we all know in in real inclement weather the deer aren't going to be laying out there in a switchgrass field when it's you know sleeting and heavy snow and that kind of thing they're going to be in in a, in a forested area typically if there's some uh evergreen cover available etc where the the snow is not as deep and, and uh, the wind is not as, as hard on them. So, you know, uh, switchgrass is not the, the cure-all for everything. Yeah. So then this appropriate management of these old fields, I, I selfishly have a couple of specific questions because I've got a place that I, that I have a, a certain degree of management control over, um, but I can't do everything and anything. I, I couldn't do a burn on it. Um, but I, I can plant food plots as long as I don't mess with the farmer's crops. It's that kind of thing. And if there's open space, I can do things with it as long as it's, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind. And there is a large power line that runs through this property and then a low lying area, uh, that drains a lot of water off the fields. And now is, is mostly some kind of uh, cool season grass. I think it's either orchard grass or Timothy grass, um, and it, it covers almost all of this, probably five acre kind of relatively low place. And then there's this, you know, 
I don't know, half a mile long power line that runs through this property that's mostly that kind of grass. Um, I have a couple food plots in there, but for for a while now, I've known if I could do something with that grass and convert it to something that's beneficial for wildlife, that would probably have a greater impact than just my couple tiny food plots. Um, but I, I suppose I've Without just been, question. yeah, okay. I guess I've just been hesitant to, to. I, I suppose I've thought maybe I, I don't have the right equipment or the ability to do it without having fire or a big disc or something like that. Um, can I make a difference just by spraying this stuff? Is that going to be enough to to get something native coming up again or something more beneficial than this carpet of grass right now? Yeah, that <clears throat> Mark, what you just described is exactly what I'm talking about. And so if you simply in that situation, you've got a non-native perennial cool season grass, whether it's Timothy or orchard grass, bluegrass, tall fescue, uh, you can add brome grasses to that, what have you. All you need to do is go in there in the fall, uh, as I've said uh, many, many times, typically after a couple of frosts and then spray the grass, usually with a uh, 2% solution of, of a glyphosate herbicide one time and you've just fixed it it is that simple uh spray it one time and walk away by the following spring you're going to have an explosion of all kinds of stuff coming out of the seed bank some of that stuff is going to be good some of that stuff not so good if if some of the stuff is not so good we simply go in typically once per year in may through july and spot spray the stuff that we don't like leave the stuff that we do like, and let nature take care of the rest. Um, wherever you have plants that are undesirable and you spot spray, you're going to have dead patches and something is going to germinate in that patch within a couple of rains, you know, d- during the growing season. And so if you do that right there once per year over the course of, of three years or so, you will have absolutely transformed that field. And by default then, Everything there will be what you want because you've been you've simply been killing what you don't want instead of planting what you do want. When you plant what you do want, <laughs> you still have what you don't want because you haven't yeah. gotten rid of it yet. There's going to be plants coming in from the seed bank that you don't like. And so instead of planting what you want, simply kill what you don't want and let nature fill in the rest. So, so I understand that that fall spraying is more effective. I think I saw one of your studies that showed, you know, the amount of uh, non-desirable species the year or up to three years after is, is much less when you do that fall spraying versus a spring planting. But we're talking in late February. Um, can I, is it, is it so inefficient to spray early in the spring? that I should wait all the way till this fall? and Or could I start now, once that stuff starts graining up this spring, and start to see some kind of positive benefit this first summer and fall, rather than waiting a full you know, six, seven months from now to start? Yes, ab- absolutely. It's just that you will have additional mop-up of those cool season grasses over the next two or three years, as opposed to having your first herbicide application uh, completed in the fall. And so... On average, what we have found is with spring spraying, perennial cool season grasses, 
by the second year after spraying, you're probably going to have uh, at least 30, maybe 40% coverage of that grass because you don't get as good of a kill on the root system. But um, if you want to go ahead and get started, absolutely. It just means that you'll have a little more mop up of some of those cool season uh, grasses down the road. Okay. And, and I think I read somewhere, but I want to make sure I understand this correctly. Um, there's a, there's a significant thatch layer of all this dead grass that's, you know, knocked down every single year, right? Before the spring green up, when there's going to be that new growth, when I would spray, would it work to, would it be worth my time to go in there and mow that thatch down a couple times just to knock that down and make it, uh, so I'll have better contact to that new grass when it does start growing. Is that the right way to prep or clean that field before spring? Um, if you have standing dead material that would block the herbicide coming in contact from the green growing grass, then it definitely will behoove you to mow that before the grass starts growing, get that knocked down. And then when the grass comes out and greens up really good in springtime and uh, let's see, would you be doing this in Michigan? Yeah. And so you would probably be looking at spraying in in May, like early May or something when, you know, it really starts growing really good and before it bolts and begins to to flower. And so, you know, if you go over it with uh, and and mow it sometime in uh, March, April, and you're kind of setting the table there, you know, uh, cleaning things up and enabling fresh growing grass to come out. Uh, that that would give you your best result. Now, okay. what I thought you were asking w- is about the the dead thatch that remains after you spray the grass, mm. and and you and if you can't burn, and if you can't burn that off, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it's dead. It's not uh, senescent, meaning you know it's going to come back. It's dead, and so it will uh, deteriorate and decompose over time and plants are going to come right up through that. No problem. Perfect. Okay. Well, I've got my, uh, my marching orders. This is the year that I, I finally need to do it. So, well, and, and, you know, I, I certainly sympathize with you. I know a lot of people are, are in either places or position, whatever, where, where they can't burn. And we talk about burning a lot and, of course, burning is, is a fantastic management tool, but if, if you can't burn fields, uh, all is not lost. Um, in particular, if you're using these spot herbicide applications, that, that, that is a game changer right there. Uh, we, we simply drive through the field as if we were mowing on a, open cab tractor ATV and off of either side of the, uh, the tractor with a spray gun, not the, the spray boom, but a spray gun, simply spot spray those plants that you don't like. And by doing so, what you're doing is setting back succession. And so you're going right back to square one where you have annual plants germinating in those dead bare patches uh, instead of existing perennial plants. And so if you burn a field, particularly if you burn it in uh, late winter, early spring, you consume the material, but you are promoting perennial grasses and other perennial plants by doing so. You're, you're, You're 
maintaining a community that's primarily going to be perennial plants. If at some point you scratch the dirt a little bit, you know, light disking, it doesn't have to be, you know, a heavy bog disc or whatever, but, you know, you lightly disc, that's where you're going to stimulate more annual forbs coming out. And that will give you increased plant diversity. So if, if you can't burn, you know, don't, don't worry, uh, using spot spray applications and, and doing some uh, light disking every two to three years is, is really good. And even if you're mowing, you know, try to keep your mowing in late winter, early spring, before the nesting season of, of various species. And, uh, and if you want to disc, but you don't have a heavy enough disc, if you mow ahead of time and then disc, you know, sometime after you, you mow, that, that will cause some, obviously, some, some soil disturbance, and that will maintain a different suite of plants. Instead of, if you just mow all the time, then you're probably going to end up with a grass-dominated situation. And if you just burn, particularly if you just burn in late winter and early, early spring, you're going to be dominated by grasses and, and some other perennial plants. You know, one that's very common up your way is goldenrod. Yeah. You know, you see fields that are just solid goldenrod. Well, you know, I'm not a goldenrod hater. I, I like goldenrod, but I don't want a field full of it. Sure. And so in, in such a situation, such a situation, uh, you need to disc because that's a strong perennial forb. And it can remain on that site for a long, long time. And your species diversity is, is very low. And so even if you have a, a light tandem disc, if you mow it ahead of time and then you go over it with a disc, you'll reduce the goldenrod density because that's a perennial plant and you just disturbed its root system and you'll give rise to more annual species. Something I've heard you mention over and over again has been diversity. And it would it would seem that in many cases that is is like a is a principle to always keep in mind when we're trying to do what's best for the landscape, what's best for the overall ecosystem, what's best for biodiversity is often plant diversity or land use type diversity, whatever it might be. I guess number one, am I am I interpreting that correctly? And then number two, are there any other overall principles similar to this emphasis on diversity that we should be thinking about when trying to be better stewards of the landscape, um, not just being deer 100%, but deer plus. Um, anything else other than this idea of diversity being important? Well, I, I think first off, number one, you're, you're correct. And, and I think that's an accurate line of thinking. But let's, let's think for just a second about what diversity is. You know, species richness refers to the number of species that that you, you know, let's say in a field, if you're talking about plants, the number of species that occur in, in the field. All right. The diversity takes into account the species richness as well as their distribution. Hmm. And so hopefully you wouldn't have one a group of plants in this corner of the field and another group of plants in this corner of the field. See, if that were the case, your species richness would be just as great, but your diversity wouldn't be. Your diversity would be greater if there's better mixing across the field of those plants. And so the same is true, you know, if, uh, if you're talking about the diversity of a landscape. 
And so with a landscape, that's where I'm, I'm stressing that people should not just manage their woods or manage their property in woods. If, if you have a, a property that is, that is solid woods, you know, depending on the size, you should do something to create some, some openings, because if you create openings, then you're going to have a totally different plant community and you're going to have different wildlife species. And some wildlife species such as deer will have additional resources that they didn't before. And so on the landscape, you can have increased diversity by not just having additional vegetation types, but also looking at the distribution of those vegetation types. And that can be very important with regard to uh, to where wildlife are found, their movements and time they spend in, in different areas, etc. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play 
or app store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. What if we were to continue down that line of thinking? And if I were if I were in the the Craig Harper masterclass for how to be a, a better land steward, um, I think I'm I'm picking up on here managing our old fields appropriately. I'm picking up on diversity of not just uh, species richness but also distribution. Um, I, I think we've talked a little bit about the importance of you know looking at more than just hey what's good for deer in a silo. Um, what would a few of the other pillars of your approach be if you were to you know have that bullet list of the main things that you really want to drill into someone's head someone who, who's been doing the you know big buck on a bag food plot thing for a lot of years maybe um, and is now trying to expand their horizons a little bit what would the next couple things be on that top three top four list um one of the things that i think is is very important is not just managing a property, but thinking about your scale of management. You know, one, one I'm going to say problem is that a lot of people don't manage their property that, you know, they just have property and they don't, it doesn't even cross their mind that they can do something to improve their woods, improve their fields for, for different wildlife species, or, or they, they might know they could, but they don't because of cost. They don't because they don't want to expend the effort, et cetera. So not managing is one thing. But then when you look at the group of landowners who do manage their property, uh, not that many of them think about their scale of management. And so what I'm getting at there is, let's say, for example, you're going to burn a section of woods. Or let's say that you're going to uh, setback succession in your fields by uh, either burning or disking or, or what have you. Well, how big of an area do you burn? Or how much of the field do you disk? Or do you disk all of your fields in the same year? Or do you leave some of them for, you know, a rotation such that some are, are disturbed one year and, and, and not the others? And so thinking about how big of an area should be managed at once is, is very important. And I think that's particularly important with fire. Uh, of course, we use fire to, to manage woods, but do we have uh, areas broken out where you're burning five acres, 10 acres, 50 acres, 500 acres? You know, there's, there's lots of thought, you know, into that. And, and it's not that something is necessarily right or wrong, but when you think about the movement of a particular wildlife species and uh, the area that they typically are found, you know, a, a seasonal home range, then you consider, wow, you know, if I burn 500 acres, I've just displaced that animal, most of them, for a certain amount of time. And so would I benefit that species if I implemented my management on a smaller scale? And if so, what should that scale be? And that's something really that, that we're still trying to tease out in, in research. And I'm not just talking about myself, but a lot of people are working on this uh, concept of, of scale and what should it be? Uh, what, what would be best not only for species A, B, and C, but for you know, a, a wider uh, a, a assemblage of species? So uh, that, that's something that I find of, of of, of great interest. And, uh, we were doing a workshop, I don't know, just 
two or three years ago, I remember, and, and we were burning. Uh, we were burning a field. And of, of course, in a workshop, the area that we burned was was fairly small. And I remember uh, one guy asking me, well, you know, how big of an area do you need to burn to help something? And, uh, you know, like and what he was getting at is to attract deer and, mm-hmm. you know, provide, you know, a fresh, you know, re-sprouting food source to deer. And I asked him uh, and, and the crowd, I said, uh, what is the smallest food plot that you all have planted and killed a deer in? And so, you know, their answers came in, you know, half acre, third acre, whatever the case may be. And I said, so what is wrong with getting your backpack blower out and blowing around a half acre uh, spot right there and burning it? Do you not think that will attract deer? You know, of yeah. course it would. So, you know, and don't stop at that. Go do another one and another one and another one. Now, that's an extreme example. I'm not telling people to burn on half acre uh, scale, but the point is, I would much rather have several smaller management units than one really large management unit. That way I'm providing more resources, both food and cover for a particular wildlife species through the year better than if I managed it all at once. Does that even all kind of trickle back down to creating diversity because you're creating timescale diversity? In management applications, you you absolutely are. Yeah, interesting. And 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 see, I, I don't I don't like to get you know just wrapped up in you know the word diversity or the uh, the the concept of it. You know, you could have uh, greater species richness. Let's say, for example, you have fifty native plants in a field and. 25 non-native plants. Well, your species richness and your diversity are greater with those non-native plants. <laughs> well, I don't want those. So, you know, th- there's a case where, you know, less species richness and less diversity would be would be better. So we have to keep things in, in context that, uh, you know, we're just, we're just trying to make things better. And so if, if you or I or most people go into a restaurant, we would like to see, and, and, and let's think about this. You could only eat at that restaurant. Well, we would like to see a lot of things on the menu, wouldn't we? Sure. We, we would like some choices every once in a while. Yep. And, you know, even our, our uh, needs change, not as much now as they did thousands of years ago, but they changed through the year. I mean, I, I certainly find myself eating a little differently in, in hot summer as I would in, in, in cold winters. Sure. And so that's, that's the whole point, trying to provide different wildlife species with, with as many options as we can because they inherently know what they need. And so if we provide lots of things, they can do the picking and the choosing and, and come out uh, in, in best shape possible. Yeah. So, so you mentioned another thing that if I were making a list of, of what I'm trying to create here, which is like maybe my 10 commandments for better landscape stewardship or whatever it might be. Uh, we've talked about a few of these different things, but one of them is, is native managing for native versus non-native species. That seems to be something that universally across the board, almost everyone says is going to be better for landscape health, better for you know, most species, um, 
If you care about the whole suite of wildlife on your property, managing native is, is usually the way to go. But we're here. I'm hearing more and more folks say, well, what's native versus non-native anything anymore, right? Everything around us is from somewhere else. That's the way of the world. That's where things are going. Um, so many of these species are naturalized now. They've been here for 100 years. I see birds eating the berries on my autumn olive all the time, yada, yada, yada. Um, two questions out of that. Number one, what's your response to someone who has that perspective? And then number two, why is it that managing for native vegetation is so much more beneficial for wildlife in general? Well, let me reverse the questions, if I may. Sure. Um, managing for native species, by and large, in general, is going to be native plant species, is going to be better for native wildlife because that's what the wildlife evolved with. The wildlife didn't evolve with, with plants from a, different, from a different continent. And so when somebody says, well, what is native, what is non-native? Well, I can answer that fairly easily. If uh, a plant is from a given area, it is native to there. If it's not, then it's not native. Uh, you know, that's pretty easy. And when they say, well, you know, is there any need to worry about this? You know, they're naturalized and that kind of thing. You know, I remember the day when, when I was kind of wrapped up in this more than, than I am now, and it would really, really bother me if there was anything non-native on a particular property and I wanted to go out of my way uh, to get rid of it. But I, I guess I've, I've changed my way of thinking a little bit. I still am a strong uh, native plant proponent and in general want to get rid of non-native species. But <laughs> for example, if you have autumn olive and I've watched turkeys eat, uh, break the branches out of autumn olive trees, e eating the berries. Is that that big of a deal if you're not letting it spread everywhere? Um, I think if it's a non-native species and it is helping you meet your objective, as long as you're not allowing this to, to spread all over and take over the property, um, and... You know, it's, it's not an easy situation because somebody can say, well, it's, it's spreading onto other properties, not just your property. And that certainly can be true. However, more likely than not, if it's on your property, it's already on the neighbors also. Now, if you're in a situation where you have a non-native species, and particularly if you brought it in, and that could then spread from your property to others, I, I think you have a responsibility of getting rid of that plant because then you're, you're having an adverse effect on, on other people and, and, and I don't want to do that. But uh, I've, I've backed off a little bit on you know this, this strong uh, approach that I used to have. If anything's non-native, let's get rid of it. You know, there's several examples of, of non-native plants that the wildlife species that I'm managing for is is benefiting from it. Now, I still kill multiflora rows. I don't care if rabbits are a, uh, a focal species on the property or not because I can easily manage fields and have a field full of rabbits without multiflora rows along the edge. Um, and there are others that whatever 
circumstance there is, you need to get rid of it. Things such as Sericea, Lespedeza, uh, Kogan grass. I mean, there, there's lots of examples where there's there's no reason to have this on your property. But, you know, you brought up autumn olive and, and you know, I, I don't plant, I don't promote autumn olive. But, um, you know, if you cut the stem of a big autumn olive bush and let it re-sprout, those re-sprouts have some of the highest crude protein content we've ever recorded in any plants, above 40%. I mean, it's like off the charts. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that. Probably some people was, hey, we need to, we need to have more of that. But uh, see, that's not allowing it to produce berries. That's cutting the stem and just keeping it, you know, vegetative re-sprout. Yeah. Well, so much of it comes down to prioritizing limited resources. And most times that's limited time or or financial resources, right? And if time and money were no object and we could just snap our fingers and, and change everything we wanted on the landscape, well, then maybe we would get rid of every single non-native because you could replace it with a more beneficial non-native. or native. That, But that, Absolutely. Okay. But in reality, right, that's, that's not the case. We can't do that. We have to make choices how we're going to spend our time, what we're going to focus on. And so it does make sense to me that there might be more efficient uses of your time or, or better bang for your buck uses of your time um, attacking other native species that are invasive and spreading or doing these different yeah, things it, we're talking you, about. You, you have to pick your battles. You're exactly right. And, and I'll give you a couple of uh, uh, perspectives. One, if you've got a field of non-native grass, that is one that you should you should address. If you're interested in in deer, turkeys, and, and most other wildlife species, that's your low-hanging fruit right there. Simply kill it, and, and you're going to improve things tenfold and, and greater just by doing that. And as I mentioned, there's other plants, whether it be uh, Sericea lespedeza, Bermuda grass. There, there's lots of them that I'm going out of my way to do what I can to uh control those. And, and that's that's an interesting word right there. Does control mean kill or does control mean completely eradicate and get rid of? Or does control mean maintain it at a level that allows you to meet your objective? And uh, an example of that might be something like oriental bittersweet. It's, it's a vine that, that grows in the woods. It's extremely uh, prevalent in, in most areas of the eastern U.S. And I mean, it's it's a problem. It's a problem. But how does how did the Oriental bittersweet get there? It got there by birds eating and, and dropping the berries. Yeah. Uh, not on my property, but on somebody's property. It could have been miles and miles away. And so I, I put all this time and effort into spraying, getting rid of Oriental bittersweet in my woods well, I can't be surprised when I find it in there again next year because the birds came back. And so the whole thing about controlling non-native species now, it, it used to be looked at more as an event when, when we, you know, I'm going to say 25, 30 years ago, we didn't have near the problems that we do today. And and now it, it got it's gotten to the point where people say, well, you know, I, I don't think I should cut any trees or disturb my woods or whatever, because if I do, I'm just going to get non-native species. And, and to that, uh, at least my perspective is no, 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 no. I'm definitely managing my woods. I'm definitely using disturbance. I know that non-native species are going to show up. It's simply uh, a way of life now. It, it's just something that, that we've got to do. Uh, 
combating non-native species has just gotten to be a, uh, a, a standard procedure anymore. You, you can't look at it as, as an event. I'm going to get rid of it and won't have to do it again. You, as long as you manage land, you're going to have to continue to, to deal with non-native species. Uh, so you mentioned a couple specific species examples, and then you, you mentioned that, you know, if you've got a cool season grass field, that's, you know, like a, like a sod layer, that's a, that's a fire five-star alarm kind of thing. Are there any other more general categories of, of problems that would be like, this has to go right to the top of your list? Like, like I'm, I'm imagining maybe one of them might be, we've got this monoculture cool season grass field that you just described. That's an issue. Is the same thing true if you have a monoculture of old age class hardwoods or something like if you've got a really old mature forest where there's nothing growing underneath you know is that one of those things or hey that's got to go to the top of the list because again we we lack diversity in species richness anything like that Uh, am, am i on the right path with something like that or are there other things that you would call out as being these hey to the top of the list yeah no i i agree i i think you're right um at least the uh, the closed canopy hardwoods, according to what species they are, the the wildlife, even if there's nothing growing under uh, in the understory, at least wildlife would get something from the mast that's uh, being available. Where they're uh, for most species, they're get, they're getting nothing out of the the cool season grass field. Um, but but yes. Uh, there, there's so many things that can be done to your woods by simply a- allowing a little sunlight to come in. And there's all kinds of levels of sunlight that uh, that will allow uh, better development of the understory. And then you think about your disturbance regime as how you can uh, change that over time, either through cutting or or fire, what have you. So there's there's lots of work that we can do both in our forest and our field to to improve them. But again, to get back to that central theme, uh, having a little bit of a whole lot of stuff available is very important to many of these wildlife species that we're interested in. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Okay, so here's one species that you mentioned as being a generalist, um, but I'm I'm curious if there are any specific things we can do to help this generalist, which are turkeys. They've been in the news a lot over recent years because we are in some states and some regions of the country starting to see these declines. I know you worked on a study relatively recently looking at that, um, I think down in your neck of the woods around Tennessee. When it comes to turkeys... If that's something that we're worried about in our area, what are some of the most effective management uh, efforts we can tackle that are going to help with some of these limiting factors that are possibly slowing the uh, the growth or, or restoration of turkey populations? Well, as related to habitat, trying to provide something on your property for all of their life's needs. And so, you know, a, a turkey will nest just about anywhere. But interestingly, in the five-county area that we conducted the, the turkey project in over, uh, it's, it's in its eighth year right now, um, right at 50%, almost 50% of the nests were located in either early succession or a very young regenerating stand, which represented only 7% of the landscape. Wow. So, I mean, think about that. Yeah, nearly fifty percent of the nest occurred on seven percent of the landscape, and having that available can be very important because also nest success in early succession was greater than any other vegetation type: mature woods, regenerating woods, pasture, hayfield, what have you. Nest success was greatest in in early succession, and so you know, in like an old field. So then thinking about what happens after nesting, well, they have broods. And so having uh, cover that is appropriate for broods with regard to the height 
and the density is very important. And so there's where Forbes can be very important. And particularly if that cover is not taller than, than the hen. You know, if the hen can see out over the cover, she typically selects those areas, but the cover is tall enough to conceal the poles. That's very important. And Mark, you know, forever, everybody's always thought of fields as being the best brooding cover. Well, they fields may be, but that's dependent upon the structure of the fields. If the, if the growth and thatch at ground level is so dense and tight that poults can't maneuver through it, then you're going to see the, the hens with broods either use woods or around the edges of fields. And, and that is precisely what we have seen in, in, uh, in, in South Middle Tennessee. Of the fields that they had available to them, uh, they would strongly select them for nesting, but the structure was so dense in general at ground level, they didn't, they didn't brood in them, har- hardly at all. And so that's when you begin looking at managing your woods a little differently. I would argue, and, and I've said to, to many audiences, I would, I would say that an oak woodland or an oak pine woodland where you know, your, uh, the amount of sunlight coming in might be anywhere from around uh, 30 to, to 70%, but having those oak woodlands where you're managing with frequent fire, those are, I would consider them the single best vegetation type for wild turkeys. They have fall foods, they have spring and summer foods, there's cover for nesting, cover for brooding. Obviously, they can uh, roost in there according to uh, when and how often you manage it. There can be uh, loafing cover. There's there's something in these oak woodlands for turkeys at, at all times. So don't overlook the value of your woods and reducing the, the, the tree density to allow a certain amount of sunlight to come in because those can be outstanding uh, brood rearing areas, not just your fields. And, 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 and if you do have fields, you definitely want to manage some of them either with fire or disking to open up the structure at ground level. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it, there's a plant canopy, but it's open underneath where the, where the poults can walk about very easily. And you'll see increased use in, in those types of fields versus those where there's a lot of thatch build up, dead material, and it's so dense that, that the poults can't hardly move. And is that same kind of, management philosophy or set of ideas appropriate or helpful to other bird species like woodcock, bobwhite quail, grouse, similar type habitat needs? Is that going to help across the board? Um, With regard to the structure, it can be very different uh, by different bird species. But with regard to uh, having something on your property available such that they need all the way through the year. Absolutely. That, that, that holds true. And so the structure that, that a grouse is going to use is going to be very different, of course, than, than a bobwhite or, or a turkey and, and ditto for, for woodcock. But, uh, so, so your management would be different for those species, you know, specific management for woodcock versus specific management for, for, uh, for turkeys or, or bobwhite. But the overall general requirements are the same. It's just that the specific types of cover and specific types of food can be very different. So that's where it gets like tricky in my mind is, is how do I, how do I go about making a decision on my management prescription 
when I don't necessarily, and maybe you have to, to do it right, when I don't necessarily want to prioritize grouse over turkeys or deer over turkeys, if I, if I, if I do want quality habitat for the deer, but I also have turkeys that I want to make sure this is going to be hospitable to. And oh, by the way, there are rough grouse out here too, or I want to make sure that there could still be grouse out here. And oh, by the way, I also want to make sure that, um, yeah, I'm providing opportunity for A, B, and C down the list, small mammals, rabbits, whatever. Um, is it, is it just a matter of the fact that you, you can't have it all? Or are there well, some general, like, like, how do do you get what I'm having a hard time forming a question around here? How do I make sense of this? Well, I, I think what you're getting at is if you manage a little bit for everything, you can have a little bit of everything, but you might not have a whole lot of anything, if that, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and so if, if you have a wide variety of vegetation types and successional stages, then you're going to have the structure, that, that density of vegetation that a grouse would prefer, and you would have the density of vegetation that, you know, turkey broods would, would prefer, you know, whatever the case may be. But your property might not be tuned in the best possible for any one of those species, but you're providing a little uh, a little something for for all of them. And so the occupancy of your property can be very high by different species, but it might not be the best property in the county for species A, B, or C. Does that make sense? It does. So my next question then would be, is that the... And and so if I may if I may interrupt you so sure. in in that case I, I think your objective then would be to provide a property that provides as much as possible for the widest number of species and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that I, I think that's a, a a great objective but that's very different than if somebody is wanting to to hold as many turkeys as many gobblers on their property as they can. That, that, yep. that's, that's two different objectives. Yep. Yep. Okay. So I, I follow you there. And, and I think that, that doesn't make it, that makes it very clear. If, if you're trying to establish, you know, we talked earlier, we might not be able to save the world, but we might be able to make it a better place. Um, if, if you're a generalist hunter, land manager who wants to make it a better place, then providing a lot of different habitat types for a lot of different habitat species seems like a good rule of thumb. Um, if you have a focus yourself though, there's nothing wrong with putting a prescription on the ground that is more specific to them. Um, that all said, I guess we, there's 10,000 things that we could cover here, but I'm going to skip towards kind of the ending to, to keep you, uh, well rested and not using up all of your little bit of free time you have coming off of all your travel. Um, no, no worries. Let's end with top three bang for your buck or efficient use of time projects. If you had to pick three very specific things that someone could do, that someone could pick up a tool now and get out there and do a thing. And I understand it's all region specific and all that, but feel free to pick a, a place of your choosing and pick three projects for somebody who has this larger perspective, for someone who's trying to do something that'll make it a better place, um, what would the first three things 
you would recommend someone get going on this year? We've talked about a lot of different options. There's a lot of new ideas. I think people probably have percolating now um, after hearing this. But what would be your top three list? Um, I would say number one would be some forest stand improvement. Uh, grab a small chainsaw and get a squirt bottle with some herbicide. Go into your woods, kill the trees that are not helping you toward your objective and steer your forest into the composition that is the best it could be and into the structure that suits your objective. And so you might have areas where you implement more thinning than in others because you like the you know stem density to be fairly great to, uh, to help hold deer and, and serve as bedding cover or uh, potentially nesting cover. You might have other areas where you would want to be more open and be good brooding cover. Uh, you're killing trees that are competing with uh, good mast bearing trees and enabling them to uh, provide more food. To me, that's that's the easiest recommendation. Grab a chainsaw, go enjoy the day, and you know, in, in just several hours work, you can make a huge difference in your woods. Um, number two, I would go back to the field situation that you described. And if, if you've got fields of, of non-native grasses and you're wanting to improve the, the habitat for, for most species on your property, by simply getting rid of those grasses, that, that's going to, that, that's, that's, that's the lowest fruit right there. That's, that's a very easy one. And then number three, I think I would probably encourage people to, if they haven't already, to try prescribed fire. And what I've told people is don't start big, start small and get some people who have implemented fire to help you go to some workshops. If you have a prescribed fire certification course in your state, either through the state forestry agency, uh, prescribed fire councils, et, et cetera, learn more about fire because if, if you can use fire, you can get to the next level with your, your, your habitat management. And it doesn't have to be a great big burn, you know, if you burn, you know, an acre of a field, you know, disc around one acre and under the appropriate conditions, and I know we can't get into all that, but under the appropriate conditions, you can have a very safe burn event, ditto in your woods. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't burn hardwoods without killing trees. That is a myth that is patently false, period. Uh, take a leaf blower if you've got nothing else and blow a fire break around a section of woods. And again, in the appropriate conditions, uh, use prescribed fire, low intensity prescribed fire in those woods and, and watch at, uh, the effect. It, it, it is tremendous. Great, great uh, working orders for us there, Craig. I well, you know, it, it, it seems it seems simple uh, to me. It seems overly simple, and a lot of times I'm kind of talking about the same thing with with different folks. But uh, it, it j try those things. Work in your woods with a little 
you know, a small chainsaw is not wearing you out. Get a squirt bottle of herbicide, spray the grass out of your fields. Uh, even if it's planted native grass, spray that. You know, if you've got like a maximum of 30% grass cover, I've said that so many times, you're going to have a field that is much, much better uh, for a, the vast majority of wildlife that would be using it and, uh, and, and try pr- prescribed fire. Uh, you know, that, that's a big thing right there, trying to prescribe fire. There's a lot to yeah. that. I, I don't mean to make it sound overly simple, but I think those three things right there will, will really help change your management. Yeah. Well, there's actually, for anyone who's interested, there is a learn and burn um, event occurring here yes. in Michigan put on by the National Deer Association actually on a property that I purchased and managed. And then we, we gave to the national deer association, the back 40. I don't know if you're familiar. Well, yeah, you probably were. I, I, I saw that. Well, isn't it in June? Is that correct? I think it's July 13th is okay, the number okay. that's popping in my head, but anybody interested in that should go to deerassociation.com and you'll see information about that. It looks like a, a pretty great event in which there's going to be a burn taking place on the property with folks there. I think Kip's going to be there and a few others helping walk through how to safely um, manage a prescribed burn, how to put together the plan, how to do the whole thing. Um, that'll be tremendous. So that'll be that'll be great. That's in Southern Michigan. Um, we do we do something like that at most of the Deer Steward two courses, yeah. and you know those typically are in the summertime, not all of them, but typically in the summertime. And so it can be difficult to burn uh, some areas in the summertime. And so what we'll do is is have the, the landowner or land manager spray a certain area of a field, you know, two, two to three weeks before we get there, because that way, you know, even if it rained the day before, if the sun pops out, you'll probably be able to burn uh, dead vegetation in the field. And yeah. at least that allows people to see how to start a fire, how to, you know, the different firing techniques, et cetera. So it, it's, a, it's a very good thing. Yeah. So to, to close this all out, Craig, if there were folks who have been intrigued by this whole conversation um, and just and want to learn more, want to go down this path further, are there any resources you recommend to, for people to read, watch, listen to? Um, I, I'd love for you to plug your own things. And then also, if there's anything that you've enjoyed reading or, or looking into yourself uh, that you might recommend to folks. Well, you know, people can find just about whatever they want right at their fingertips pretty easily by searching various categories and topics. You know, I uh, try to... Uh, uh, make available the publications that we've written on, on my webpage. Someone can go there and find all that. But, you know, I, I'm just one person. If, if you look at the, the people involved in wildlife and academia across the country, you know, most people have uh, a webpage that's, that's full of, of information. I would encourage people to search uh, different wildlife professors that are doing research on on different species and, and see what they have available. Most of the state wildlife agencies on, on their websites have all kinds of information. Um, and if you're interested in fire, uh, absolutely get in contact with your state forestry agency and see if there is a prescribed fire council in in your state. Join that. At least go, you know, to a to a meeting and and see what all is is said and done. I, 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 
your eyes can be opened in a big way. And and these states, all, many of them also offer the burn certification courses. Those are those are fantastic. There's just tremendous information uh, to be learned there. And that's a great way to get started with some experience and get to know some other people who would be willing to help you go forward. Yeah. Well, I will uh, specifically plug a couple of your books here, Guide to Wildlife Food Plots and Early Successional Plants stellar as well as managing early successional plant communities for wildlife in the eastern u.s if you're watching this you just saw those two covers um there's so much here i've only been able to scratch the surface as i've had various projects and and pulled out pages and read bits and pieces but there is a lot there when i started that back 40 project i really found the uh the guide to wildlife food plots and early successional plants super helpful because you've got this whole back section where you detail each specific species, you know, what's useful, how is this valuable to wildlife or not. Um, when I was trying to understand on that property, there was half of that property was old fallow farm fields. And so we had all these different things coming up in them. And I was trying to figure out, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Should I be spraying this? Should we be keeping it around? And your book was uh, tremendously useful in that. So highly recommend those two. Well, um, um, very glad that you were able to use that, and I appreciate the kind words. The publication on managing early successional communities is available on my webpage, you know, and you can download a lot of this stuff, uh, purchase a hard copy if, if you want it. And please know we're not, not making any money off of this. It's just uh, going into an account to go back into reprinting. The uh, food plots and early successional plants, it's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of demand and the copies are out right now, but I am hot on a revision and I'm hoping to have that out by the end of the year. So uh, if you're interested in that one, stay tuned. I'm uh, adding as much as I can some additional plant species profiles as well as uh, different mixtures for food plots and management techniques, you know, uh, regenerative approaches are, have become very popular. So trying to add more with, with that in mind. So a lot, you know, if if you continue to do research and you continue to look at others research, there's, there's always new stuff coming out. And I, I try my best to keep things as fresh as possible, but, uh, a lot of times it's hard to stay on top of it. Well, uh, we might have achieved a first within the uh, genre of white-tailed deer and wildlife habitat management podcast because we had an entire episode without once talking about food plots. So uh, <laughs> we, we might have just broke the internet with that. But uh, maybe when that new book comes out, that next revision, we'll have to uh, have it come back on and talk through some of the new regenerative food plot uh, philosophies and ideas you write about there because that's another thing that that I've uh, found really interesting and exploring more too. So there's a well, whole other. You, you, you know, I like food plots. It's just very fun to plant something and watch animals respond, but you don't have to have food plots. You know, the, the management of your naturally occurring plant communities, uh, you, you can do everything that you need with those and see terrific wildlife response. Yeah. Well, next time. And uh, with that, Craig, I'll let you get back to your day. I can't thank you enough. This was uh, this was great. Pleasure, pleasure talking to you, Mark. All right, thank you for tuning in to today's show. Hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Uh, as I mentioned there at the end, you definitely need to go pick up a couple of Craig's books if this is the kind of thing you're interested in. The best way to do that is to go to his website over on the University of Tennessee website. 
It's a, it's a long, complicated URL. So rather than giving you that URL, I would just say Google his name, Craig Harper, Tennessee. If you do that, the first link that shows up for me, at least, is that website. Click that. Then you'll see all the books, all the publications, links to umpteen different articles he's written, all sorts of studies he's published. Uh, tremendous amount of information out there for you if you want to learn more. And Craig has lots to offer. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining in. Thanks for being here with me throughout this Habitat month as we've explored this kind of habitat management beyond the norm in the deer world. I hope that you've, you know, maybe been inspired to try a few new things, maybe been encouraged to expand outside of what you're comfortable with or what you've done in the past. I know I have. I'm excited about it. And so with that all said, until next time, thank you for being here and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.